Hi, I'm Virginia Dodier. I'm the uh, project director of Making More Available, and I am proud of initiating and planning this uh, federally funded project with my museum colleagues, and I'm delighted to introduce our project archivist, Sherry Christ. And you may know Sherry from the Rochester Public Library, where she was local history and genealogy librarian for nearly a decade. Sherry is a phenomenal archivist and a wonderful colleague, and I'm so glad that we persuaded her to come work with us. That always gets a big awe. <laughs> That's down to Sherry's expertise. Click. <laughs> this quote was taken from the museum's mission statement back in the late 1940s, and it's also above the entrance to the library. And this idea of managing information sums up not only what we do here, but why we do it, which is ultimately to preserve our collections and provide equitable access access to users from all around the world. The library's special collections are world-class. People come here from the local area, from the rest of the country, plus Canada, the UK, Europe, China, Japan, Australia, to do research, and that's just um, in the last year or so. What we want to do with this project is make it easier for everyone, and that's me looking delighted to be in the Special Archives um, vault. Not just researchers who specialize in the history of film and or the history of photography find out more about what's available in the collection before their arrival. A finding aid is just what it sounds like. It's a tool for helping to find that elusive needle in the haystack. You knew there was a punchline, right? So this is Sherry's turn. Okay, so what you're seeing here are uh, uh, finding aids for five different collections. They were legacy finding aids, meaning um, they were already in existence uh, when I came here, and they'd been done over the years by various uh, volunteers, um, staff, interns, um, and there was never any set format for, for producing a, a finding aid, so that you can kind of see that um, they were, you can tell that they were created by different people at different times um, over the last 20 or so years. Um, and the levels of description in them uh, vary widely. And they also lack consistency in their elements and uh, few have access points in, uh, in terms of um, like Library of Congress subject headings um, or name authorities and that, that type of thing. And those are the things that um, provide access to uh, people beyond our walls. So what we did was um, we decided that our goal was going to be to create consistency across all future, present and future finding aids so that they conform to the accepted, uh, the accepted standards and the practices of archival description. So a major tool in this effort is the web-based application called ArchivesSpace. So ultimately what we do is by taking the legacy finding aid and applying what's called DAX standards. It's the Industry Archives Description Standard. Um, and then creating resource records in ArchivesSpace. We can improve the likelihood of both targeted and serendipitous discovery by users, whether they're here in the United States or, as Virginia said, um, in Japan, UK, all around the world. So just to give you a sense of uh, some of the headway we've been able to make in, in the special collections, 
um, one of the outcomes of the Making More Available grant is to process and describe approximately 214 linear feet of the library's special collections. And so far, project staff have processed, arranged, and described uh, 12 collections, um, totaling, totaling 35 feet. And this is just a, a list of some of the collections that we've been able to complete finding aids for. Uh, the Making More Available uh, project team is I would, uh, led by Virginia. <laughs> Well, this is an opportunity to thank those who have helped us so much because, you know, Hillary Clinton and it takes a village, well, it takes a project team to do this. And, uh, of course, Deb is here, Deb Moore, our cataloging and reference librarian who's been working with, or was working with the Museum Archives. Is Carol Baumeister here? Dale Gaucus is here. She's one of our volunteers working on the info files. Stephanie and Matthew and Beth Staff were our summer interns. Stephanie, Beth? Um, Amy Allshef and Stephanie has returned as our archives assistant. Eric Mitchell, who's loaned to us by the gracious Nick Marshall from Exhibitions, also helps. Amanda Kiesel, who's one of our PPCM students. And of course, our information technology team, including Julie Brubaker and Ori Ballinger. So I'd like to give everybody a shout out and a round of applause. <laughs> So I wanted to uh, share with you some highlights of the of the collection so far that we've been sort of been digging up in the process of processing these collections and making them available. So um, autographs are always fun, I think. Um, even even when they're they really have nothing to do with the the collection itself, and they just kind of pop up because they were part of the, the person's life. Um, so we have, here we have a signed, uh, signed letter from Theodore Roosevelt, and that was written to Stephen Henry Horgan, who uh, helped develop one of the processes for creating uh, halftones, printing halftones. Um, another piece from the Horgan collection uh, is this autograph from Mark Twain, um, which was for, uh, a dinner um, that he was speaking at, and actually, it looks like the top is is the signature, but it's actually the the signature is at the bottom in the blue ink. Um, and I just love the the smoker to follow. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a rollicking and good time. And then we have um, uh, uh, Millard Fillmore who wrote a letter to the W&F Langenheim Company. They were a one of the premier lantern slide uh, manufacturers. Um, and it's just a letter from uh, President Fillmore saying that they're doing great work, and he just wanted to commend them for that. Um, these segues might be a little uh, <laughs> uh, stiff. Um, well, speaking of autographs, Gabriel Cromer, Gabriel Cromer, uh, collected autograph letters and other mementos of his heroes, the French photographic inventors Louis-Jacques Mandé de Guerre and Nisbois Nieps. Cromer was also an inventor himself, as well as a photographer, a scholar, and a collector. The Cromer collection here at the museum comprises photographs, prints, 
paintings, cameras, and photographic and cinematographic equipment, as well as books, pamphlets, documents, and correspondence. Okay, I wanted to demonstrate to you how uh, Mr. Colmer uh, used this uh, collection as his own tool for research, and he also preserved the fruits of his research. Now this is a facsimile, done by Photogravure, I believe, of the seminal 1826 letter from Nisikor Nieps to his son Isidore, uh, in which he tells that he's been having some very good luck lately with um, pewter plates, sensitized pewter plates that um, register the image of nature. So this to um, uh, Cromer was the smoking gun, so to speak, the proof that photography is a French invention, and of course he was very concerned to prove that. So we also have uh, two drafts of Cromer's, um, Cromer's article about this in which he quotes from the letter, and uh, then we have the um, icing on the cake, the appearance of his article, you can see it there highlighted or underlined in blue ink. Cromer wrote all over his clippings, anything that he had he made notes on. And his handwriting is very distinctive, I call it French chicken scratch. And believe me, when you come become uh, aware of it, it's, it's just, um, it's sort of, I don't know, it's like, um, I guess the Dead Sea Scrolls or something, you just learn to read it. Um, so I spent, I spent the summer going over the Cromer papers and doing item level description on them and, and it was uh, just a, a really good experience. Okay, so we were lucky to have some really um, excellent interns over the summer and here we see Stephanie Matthew uh, sorting lantern slide labels from the C.W. Brinks collection which you can see in the middle picture. To the right is an example of a script that would be read aloud during Magic Lantern shows. And I don't know if you can see the, the words in the, uh, the slide labels, but these are moral sets um, having to do with temperance and uh, you know the evils of gambling and the evils of pretty much everything. Um, so uh, these actually correspond to um, objects in the photography collection, the lantern slides that go with these uh, labels and um, scripts. And here's an example of sort of how the, the collections all, uh, the juxtaposition of the collections in the different departments. Um, photographic objects are often intellectually linked to materials in our special collections, um, not just by provenance. So for example, the image on the left is a page from a catalog mock-up of lantern slides that were, that were manufactured by the C.W. Briggs Company um, in circa 1880-1890. And um, this is a close-up of the slide on the bottom right of the mock-up. And then the image on the right shows the actual lantern slide, um, which is an object that's part of the Department of Photography. Um, the, the item on the left, the, the page, is from um, our special collections, the C.W. Briggs collection. 
So, um, and it's actually 53 pages of, of these um, 12 um, lantern slides per page that he was planning to put together, uh, make into a catalog. And then we have Lewis Walton Sibley, who founded the first photography museum in the United States in 1940. Um, he wrote extensively and was very interested in the benefits of visual learning. Um, and in 1930, Sibley purchased the C.W. Briggs Company, and he used its products, its lantern slides, film strips, etc., um, to further the burgeoning field of visual education. And here we see a series of science-related film strips that would be shown in classrooms across the country while the students listened to a radio broadcast lecture in real time. And one of our, our other summer interns, uh, Beth Staff, uh, worked on a project this summer. She was inventorying the James McQuaid Oral History Project records. Um, and the name of one of the interviewees rang a bell to her. She did a little research and it turned out to be Paul Vanderbilt, who not only served as the first chief of the Prints and Photographs Division at the Library of Congress, um, but he was also one of the now famous monuments men from World War II. Um, so he was, he was actually part of what was called the Multinational Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Unit, and they were responsible for uh, planning and managing the highly involved process of returning um, stolen works of art to their rightful owners. And we have Victor Kepler, which I, I think this is kind of fun. Um, Victor Kepler was a pioneer in the world of commercial advertising, making his reputation in the 1930s as an innovator in color advertising photography using the three-color Carbro process. Uh, Kepler was known for his ability to tackle the most difficult commercial assignment, hence the trademark slogan, it can be done, call Kepler, um, which might have been conferred upon him by an ad advertising agency, um, perhaps referring to his success in capturing Santa enjoying his cigarette brand of choice. <laughs> and that brings us to uh, Stephen Henry Horgan. Horgan was a pioneer in uh, photomechanical reproduction whose work was contemporary with Frederick Ives's own experiments in the halftone process. Um, and in fact, the two were good friends who shared ideas and discoveries. Um, Horgan is, of course, the lesser known name. Every, people kind of know who Frederick Ives is, but Horgan was doing a lot of the same experiments, a lot of the same um, work on halftones. Um, and as the manager of the art department at the New York Daily Graphic, Horgan was responsible for publishing the first reproduction of a photograph with a, t a full tonal range in a newspaper in 1880. Um, the original plate of that image, which is called A Scene in Shantytown, is here uh, at the museum in the Department of, Pho of Photography. So part of uh, Horgan's, the collection, the Stephen Henry Horgan collection um, just was intriguing to me. Um, scrapbook number five, very unassuming scrapbook in the collection, uh, holds a variety of intriguing materials that beg for further research. It appears as though Horgan created this book as a case file of sorts, 
um, a sort of a testament to an incident in which Horgan felt he'd been taken advantage of. The scrapbook contains clippings, correspondence, proof sheets, and three color separation transparencies that document a contentious he said, he said between Horgan and Herbert Ives, director of electro-optical research for Bell Laboratories in 1924. If you're thinking that name sounds familiar, it should. Herbert Ives was the son of Horgan's good friend and fellow halftone inventor, Frederick Ives. The crux of the argument centered on who came up with a solution to the problem of how to transmit color photographs by telephone. Correspondence in Horgan's papers tell an interesting tale that three months prior, Horgan told Herbert Ives during a visit that a color photograph could be sent by wire, that Horgan's suggestion was met with derision and skepticism by Ives, and that Bell finally acquiesced because of Horgan's insistence. Um, and the uh, one of the things that Ives uh, accused him of was uh, ultimately trying to quash any mention, or Horgan accused Ives of trying to quash any mention of Horgan's involvement in the success of, uh, of the sending of the wire. So there's this whole back and forth um, of who did what and who discovered what, whoops, um, sorry. Um, and it, it, it's it's really um, it's really interesting that materials that you wouldn't think would have these really rich stories in them can show you just how different and how um, unique history is. There's so many things that we don't know about people's individual stories, and these are the types of collections that can give um, objects context and put them in their historical perspective. So um, so this uh, photograph of Rudolph Valentino was actually the first color photograph sent by wire. And you can see up here uh, the three color transparencies that were tucked away in Horgan's um, uh, scrapbook. And of course, I didn't know what they were when I first saw them, so I did some research um, and came and read some of the correspondence, which starts off very polite and then slowly gets more and more contentious. Um, uh, and with Horgan uh, 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 accusing Ives of trying to suppress the truth, and Ives sort of being, you know, coy and. Um, saying no, we're not. You know, we're not trying to do that. You're you're just being all sensitive. Um, so, it's it's just a really interesting set of papers that um, that I really hope someone digs into someday and just kind of pulls this story out and and verifies what really happened. Um, so it's it's curious that he had these the transparencies that made this picture. That was the first color photograph to be sent by wire. Thank you, Sherry. Um, Sherry's been telling you about the um, highlights that she's found in the Lewis Walton Sipley collection materials uh, that we have in special collections. And in fact, the Lewis Walton Sipley collection is a kind of a universe uh, unto itself, as I explained to Sherry when she first came to work with us. And um, there are collections within the collections because of the fact that he founded his own museum, the American Museum of Photography. And when that 
collection of collections came to the museum in the 1970s. It was as the gift of the 3M Foundation. And the American Museum of Photography holdings, the Lewis Walton Sibley collections, were divided among our uh, curatorial collections at the museum. So there are also um, photographs in the Department of Photography. There's equipment and cameras and so forth in the technology collection. Um, and one of our uh, one of our goals in this uh, project is to, as much as possible, cross-relate our, um, if that's the right word, our collections with each other. So as you can see, uh, as you did see in the captions, if you're looking very closely, you saw museum numbers that referred to items that are in other collections. And those uh, items are managed in our museum database, which is called TMS. And I see our registrar here, Sarah Evans. And in fact, that, that that is something that's near and dear to her heart to get everything to correlate, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, I mentioned also the Cromer Collection is another universal collection, and there is in fact a project funded by the IMLS, which has started this year, uh, called Passages to um, fully catalog the Cromer materials in the different departments. And there is also the Boyer Collection. And in the special collections, we have only a small part of the Boyer uh, collection, which is the Southwest and Hawes uh, correspondence and studio records and so forth. But I thought I would end on a picture of a very happy man. This is Alvin Scott Boyer. Uh, I believe this is in his um, own uh, museum. I think it was called the Boyer Museum of Photography. Is that right, Lisa? I've seen, um, it may not have been open to the public, but I have seen like a crest or a book plate that he used. And it's in an old bank building in Hyde Park, Chicago. And you, this man looks like he's as happy as a clam. Um, and you can see, oh, he has things in butter and egg cartons. And I bet you anything, some of those cartons are still in the museum. He gave the bulk of the collection in, I think, 1950, and then his widow gave more. So it's down to the enthusiasm, the generosity, the foresight of collectors like Gabriel Cromer, um, Louis Walton Simply, and Alvin Scott Boyer, not to mention the generosity that we owe our um, collections to, and therefore our project to, really. And um, I thank you very much. And please do make a do make an appointment to come see us Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursday. And um, if there are any questions, I'm sure Sherry or I would be glad to answer them. Thanks for coming.